Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond. Welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleague, the host of our Great Dispatch podcast, Jeremy Siegel, and Politico's foreign affairs correspondent, Rahal Tuzi, where we talk about the pandemic playbook given to the Trump administration and the shadow coronavirus response headed by White House senior advisor and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Dan, you had a tweet recently that I liked that was asking if you could have one fictional character help you get through this moment right now, who would it be? And I want to turn that question back on you. Who would be your choice of a fictional character to have with you right now? Well, I I like that I did a tweet that you liked uh, as opposed to my normal wonky (laughs) coronavirus depressing tweets. But I I think you got to go with Tony Stark or, or Iron Man. He has a proven track record of helping save the world. He's a technical genius. Only major component he still needs is a power source of high energy density. Something to kickstart the cube. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. He has the global resources to be helpful right now. It seemed like a no-brainer to me, but several thousand people on Twitter had a different opinion. Who would you pick? Mm. I, I got to go with Flash Gordon. He'll, he'll, save, he'll save every one of us. That is an old school reference. I know. So, Nahal, Nahal who, who's your who's your choice? I'd have to say I would go with anybody who could do time travel. So, probably Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Just because I'm desperate to get out of this timeline or wherever we're at, I just want to scroll forward a hundred years or so, um, or heck, even five. It has been sort of the little things like your tweet, Dan, that like help people get through when it's like a constant news cycle. We're all stuck indoors. And it's like these little moments basically that you only get online. And I saw the best video earlier today. It was like a TikTok that I saw reposted on Twitter. That was this dude who recreated the drum noises from um, the Phil Collins song, you know, coming in the air tonight. He like had all of, all of the the doors on like his kitchen cabinets opened at once. And like right, right when the drum drops, he like jumps from door to door of kitchen cabinet, like slamming them shut. And it's just like the best thing ever. I guess it's sort of still inescapable being online, like especially for you. Um, and you and Dan broke a big story recently that's that's been, I mean, in the news constantly over the past few days. Another headline today, Politico, the Trump team failed to follow the NSC's own pandemic playbook, which it had written out a 70 page playbook. The Trump administration opted not to use a pandemic playbook. Politico is reporting that the administration opted not to use a pandemic playbook created by the National Security Council after the Ebola outbreak. How did you get this playbook that nobody knew about? Well, it was basically the result of another story uh, that Dan and our colleague Daniel Lippman and I broke uh, a few days earlier. Uh, basically, we were writing about this uh, transition meeting between the Obama team and the Trump team that involved going over a pandemic scenario in January of 2017, a week before President Trump uh, took the oath of office. Uh, and along the way, I had this source who said, I've got some documents from that meeting 
I, I have them. Do you want them? So I had to go meet the source in person. Uh, there was really no other way to do it because um, the document uh, that the source had, uh, the documents uh, were only in printed form. Can I can I jump in and ask, did you keep a six feet social distance? Did, were you able to do that then? You know, I'm not going to lie. I, I did not. Uh, it was probably closer to two and a half, three feet. Uh, but it was very exciting to have him hand over copies. You know, he, he gave me these documents and, and, and I went home and I'm going through them. And, you know, basically there were two key documents at the end of the day in them. And one of them was very clearly part of the transition meeting. But the other one was, to me, even more fascinating and more interesting, but somewhat more mysterious. And I couldn't quite definitively place it at that same meeting. And, you know, I sent some pictures of it to, to Dan. Uh, and I, I was like, look, this is really interesting. But I'm not sure if it quite fits in this meeting. Uh, and so we decided to uh, make it a separate story. And then a couple of days later, I actually, again, there was, it was, a, it was a long document, this playbook. Uh, and I, I, had, I couldn't really you know, take a billion pictures of it. So I just uh, went to Dan's house, outside the house, uh, took an Uber. And he definitely stood several feet away from me. Uh, but he took the document. <laughs> and part of the reason that I gave it to Dan was because um, he, it was, it was a very complicated document. And I'm not a health policy expert. And I was really worried that I was not going to understand it properly. So I handed it to the expert. So Dan, what happens next? You're the expert. You've got these documents. What do you do? What do you learn? Well, first, after I took the documents in a very uh, careful, nearly six-foot handoff from from Holly, I went upstairs, put on a pair of rubber gloves, uh, and and paged through the pages. No, no knock to the hall. I was I was just trying to follow whatever protocol <laughs> that we were reporting about in in healthcare. And I think Jeremy, we realized pretty quickly the documents weren't dated; they weren't linked to a specific team, but we were able to figure out that they were National Security Council documents, which is the group in the White House that thinks about these big global threats, advises the president, serves as a central clearinghouse for lots and lots of policy. And once we were able to figure out that it was produced by the National Security Council, we went and, and almost reverse engineered, how did this document get put together? I was trying my sources. I know, I know Hallie was trying hers. And we were able to identify where the document came from, when it was put together, which was at the end of the Obama administration, before being presented to the Trump administration, and, and talk to some of the staffers who either worked on it, received it, had, had impressions of it. And we realized, I think the biggest takeaway, this playbook of what the nation should do in a pandemic would have been awfully helpful when the nation was actually faced with a pandemic this year. And we tried to figure out why was this document not used? Why was it ignored? What did you find out? I mean, why was this ignored? Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway was it was ignored because people who had either worked on it had left, or it was seen as yet another Obama document that the Trump administration knew better and came up with its own models and own plans, which if you're looking back at the past two months, the coronavirus response has been imperfect. It hasn't worked to the level that it could have. This playbook laid out specific rubrics. If, if X happens, this is the Y agency you need to tap. And according to the playbook, things that were happening at the end of March should have been happening at the end of January, given the global threat and the actions that the U.S. government took. 
I guess like this gives us some insight into what, you know, reporting is like during a pandemic. You know, you two are trying to keep your distance from each other. You're you're handing things off, you know, it, with gloves. You're pouring through these documents, trying to be as careful as possible. Nahal, let me ask you, I mean, how does it feel different to be reporting during this time? Like, what's it like personally to just sort of find a a basically secret document like that during such a crazy time? Well, I love getting documents. That's one of my favorite things to do as a reporter. Uh, But generally speaking, I'm kind of going crazy. Like, and, and just to be clear, I'm an introvert. I actually am not really a huge fan of people and hanging out in crowds or anything like that. So that part of it is fine. But I also just... Like, I do like the one-on-one meetings. I, I do like um, the the idea that I can just kind of walk outside and, and do like actual shoe leather reporting, go to a place, see something. Uh, and I, I really, I've been trying so hard, like generally in my life to reduce my reliance on technology, to have less screen time, to have fewer apps on my phone. And this has completely reversed that for me. So, I mean, it's like more apps, there's more ways and... In a, in a way, it's a blessing because I all of these apps from Signal to WhatsApp to whatever, you know, it's ways that people can send you documents and information and they can be in touch with you. So that's, thank God for that, right? But it's also just personally driving me insane. It's, I feel like it's really adding to my anxiety and um, I'm just, you know, it's just kind of nerve wracking. I'm not really enjoying it. Well, there are things that I like about the the focus on the work right now. I mean, there is no bigger story in the world and maybe in my life than coronavirus. And for all of the awful, awful things that have come, it is very clarifying as a reporter to work on this story and know what needs to be done and that nothing is going to take precedent in, in, in terms of the stories I'm focused on than this big story. But the day-to-day of reporting for me is, is really different. There were some sources that I only met in person. Uh, for sensitive conversations. I can't really do that. There was a potential source who wanted to get together. This was probably a week ago, week and a half ago, originally suggested coffee, uh, which was tough because there were no coffee shops open. And even if there were, I I don't know if I would have met that person. So then we were negotiating over whether we were going to go for a walk. But if we walked around and we're six feet apart, is that even a smart way to meet a potential source? So I, I find... I, I find real differences in how I have to think about my job. And if this is going to be the reality for reporters for weeks and months to come, in addition to everyone else, I think it really will involve changing my strategy around how I, I talk to some people. I mean, regardless of this new dynamic, you both broke another big story recently. You've been reporting that the White House is pushing the FDA to allow a Japanese flu drug to be used for treating the coronavirus. And... I mean, when I was reading your story, like it really struck me, this drug is unproven. It's owned by Fujifilm, like the Fujifilm that makes cameras is making a coronavirus drug. I mean, this all just sounds kind of odd to me. Can you can you both break down to me like how you got this story and and what's going on here? So, Jeremy, when I heard that Fujifilm was making a drug, I, too, was confused. Uh, But something something I learned was that the camera and imaging work of Fujifilm is a relatively small percentage of their business. Maybe one in every six dollars in revenue comes from that stuff. Fujifilm's healthcare business is twice or three times as big at this point. They've bought up uh, pharma concerns and, and the drugs associated with that. Basically, Fujifilm produced this drug to fight the flu. 
years ago. A lot of the world didn't want this drug because of the risks. It has limited effectiveness. The U.S. didn't want it. Japan and its government does have a stockpile of this drug, which they've offered over the past number of years for various crises. They brought it back a few years ago uh, to fight Ebola. The United States government didn't want the offer then. Now they're suggesting that it could be a treatment for coronavirus, but there is limited data on whether it works. And the career scientists in the health department, as well as public health experts, don't think this needs to be rushed, but there are people in the White House who do want to see this moved along as a potential treatment. What went through your mind when Dan told you about this, Nahal? Well, I also first uh, was a little confused by the Fujifilm reference. Uh, but also, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell exactly how much of this was a result of Japan constantly, apparently for years, wanting to push this drug and how much of it was uh a, a result or involved the fact that the president, President Trump, has been really kind of hoping for a miracle drug. I mean, he's been very public about the idea that he wants there to be something quick and, and that just kind of solves this problem and gets rid of this virus. And, you know, maybe it was just a situation of these two things existing and, and them coming together um, in the situation where the president is open to these ideas and the Japanese leader and, and the Japanese uh, companies are you know, again, they're like, hey, we've been pushing this drug. Let's let's push this one forward. But it is very clear that within the U.S. government, based on the people that I've talked to, um, there's also a desire to get President Trump, you know, what he wants. If he wants some sort of a, a drug that can solve this, there's definitely a push to say, well, what is out there? What can what can happen? Um, even if career officials know that, you know, maybe they're uh, the ones that the options that they have are not perfect, um, there is a sense you know, that we have to kind of respond to the commander in chief. Um, and by the way, guys, just I, I learned a few minutes before this call that, you know, our story is being circulated among Japanese and U.S. officials uh, pretty widely and that both sides are acknowledging that it's uh, it's basically very accurate. I think, Jeremy and Halley, what one difference here, Nahal, she covers State Department policy. And if the president comes in and says, we don't have the right policy position with respect to North Korea, there can be all kinds of efforts to throw out what the last guy did and, and now have a new policy. And that raises concerns for sometimes very good reasons, uh, sometimes political objections. But there is a policy process around a new president wants a new agenda. It's very different when a president wants a health decision made that may go against the scientific principles of the career scientists. And, and that, I think, is, is worth highlighting here. We don't usually see, I can't remember, a president repeatedly touting in public or having his staff push in private on drugs that are unproven simply because the president wants to see results. And there might be some very good reasons for that optimism. We need to think differently about how to confront this unprecedented public health threat. But in my world, the thought that the FDA might somehow be subverted by White House political appointees, that is a major concern. And I can tell you that folks at the State Department definitely feel caught in the middle. They know they are not healthcare and drug experts, uh, but they feel like they're very much caught, you know, in this political struggle or political, uh, the political winds that are pushing them from both Japan and uh, the, the White House. You've done a lot of reporting, Dan, on the inner struggle inside of the White House over the response. Basically, who is in charge? 
how seriously things should be taken, what the federal government should really be doing right now. And you're reporting that a central figure at the moment is Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. What's he doing? Kushner is essentially the coronavirus czar without having the actual title. Uh, right now, he is closest to someone uh, that, that some listeners might remember, like Andy Slavitt or Jeff Zients. These were Obama administration officials who ran the 2013-2014 repair job on healthcare.gov, the broken Obamacare website. But, but the average American wouldn't know about Jared Kushner's key role because he operates behind the scenes. I went through and counted up all the officials who went up to the White House podium to talk about coronavirus at those daily briefings the past two months. There were about 30 different senior officials, a lot of health officials, uh, but, but even people like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, and then dozens of other business executives or officials. But Kushner did not appear. And I broke a story a few weeks ago about Kushner's SWAT teams. Essentially, he has brought in his allies from the business world, his, his old roommate, a guy named Adam Bowler, who'd been on the Politico Pulse Check podcast about six months ago because he ran Medicare's Innovation Center. This team is moving very quickly to identify problems in the U.S. government response, prototype solutions, and then move on to a new project. So that might be flying in supplies from overseas. They came up with a plan to do that, started bringing in those flights, and then they moved on to new issues. Dan, what do you think this Kushner team is is going to be focusing on? And do you think they're legitimately going to be effective in, in getting stuff done with all that in mind? I do think they have been effective, Jeremy, because when you look at where the response was when Kushner and his team got tapped maybe three weeks ago, things have gotten better. Now, some of that corresponds to the president three weeks ago, realizing this was a problem and changing his rhetoric, changing his urgency. So that has been the most important change for the government response. But Kushner's team has worked on things like drive-through testing. That promise uh, that, that the president made that everyone in the country would have access to drive-through testing through a Google-managed uh, website was, was totally overblown. But the team has helped get more testing off the ground, not just the drive-through testing sites, but my understanding is more testing will be coming online soon. I think a big issue that they're focused on that Adam and I have reported on is the hospital bed crunch that is coming and working on efforts to make hospital bed capacity either more available or at least make it more transparent where there are bed crunch problems. And I also think that a big focus for them will continue to be supplies. Uh, hospital workers need protection. They need gloves. They need masks. More of those are coming. And part of that is because of the Kushner team and everything they're doing to organize the response. At this press conference Tuesday night, scientists were saying we could see, you know, between 100,000 to 240,000 deaths of Americans, if not more, even if, you know, we are following these social distancing guidelines. But the Trump administration as of now, is not pushing for more aggressive crackdowns. You know, no, no sort of nationwide shelter-in-place order, no directives towards governors who might be not taking as strict as necessary action. Nahal, I'll put this to you first. What do you think is the big question that White House officials should be asking this week or thinking about, keeping in mind those shocking numbers about deaths in America? 
my guess is that, you know, the way this White House operates, um, they're probably going to be focusing a heck of a lot more on the economic question than perhaps on necessarily the, the health question. Uh, I think that they are still, and, and to a degree, understandably, you know, really worried about how we're going to bounce back from this. Um, and so my guess is that, you know, one thing they're going to be looking at is, is still like, you know, how, how long this has to go on, what sort of uh, political pressure they really do have to put on governors and others to adopt stricter conditions. And, 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 but also, but again, to be clear, all with the economics of it in mind, because the president is still thinking about getting reelected. And he knows that, you know, the one really solid thing he had going into uh, the political season uh, was the economy. And so I think that's one thing they're definitely, you know, they're going to be focusing on. Um, and, and that probably includes an, another stimulus package. That's our show for today. I'm Dan Diamond. My thanks to Dispatch host Jeremy Siegel and to my colleague, reporter Nahal Tuzi, for joining me. Our producers are Annie Reese and Jeremy Siegel. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can find Politico Pulse Check by going to your favorite podcast app and putting in the name to search for it. You can help us just leave a rating or review. Every review you leave helps new listeners find the show. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus in our Politico nightly newsletter every evening or in the Politico Pulse newsletter that I co-author every morning. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll be back with you again next week.